from Portland, Oregon. This is the Jewish Review Podcast. I'm Rocky Roll. Coming up this episode, anti-Semitism has been an increasing issue for years, but the problem has grown exponentially in the wake of October 7th. In this first of two episodes exploring how anti-Semitism is manifesting in Oregon post-October 7th, I talked to my colleagues Bob Hornstein and Rachel Nelson, Director and Associate Director of Community Relations at the Jewish Federation of Greater Portland. We'll get into what's happening on the ground, especially in schools, where the line is between political criticism and hate speech, and what is being done to mitigate the problem. Stay with us. The Jewish Review Podcast is brought to you by the Jewish Federation of Greater Portland, presenting Voices from Israel. Now expanded into January, this webinar series brings a diverse group of perspectives on the situation in Israel to your screen each Wednesday morning. Learn more and register at jewishportland.org slash israelwebinars. Now, here's Rachel Nelson and Bob Hornstein. Bob Hornstein, Rachel Nelson, welcome to the Jewish Review Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell me each about your Jewish journeys. So um, my Jewish journey really started from birth. I mean, I grew up in a strong Jewish and Zionist household. My father was actually the first administrator at Congregation Neve Shalom for 10 years in the 60s and 70s. And so I grew up around that. And my f- made my first trip to Israel when I was 17, when we had a community Israel fellow, a shliach, who took teens to Israel. I mean, that made me really fall in love with Israel. Uh, went back after college and lived there for several months working on a kibbutz where I met my wife, Doris, who is Israeli. Uh, from that point, started doing a lot of freelance writing about Jewish and or Israel-related topics. Eventually, I got on with the Jewish Federation of Greater Portland. I've been here for 29 years, 29 plus, doing community relations. I'm the director of community relations and public affairs. I also freelance write for a Israeli-English magazine, which is the Jerusalem Report, which is affiliated with the Jerusalem Post. So uh, when I write for one, it's published in the other. So that's really... And often published in the Jewish Review. And also published in the Jewish Review, of course. So I also grew up uh, in a strongly Jewish Zionist home. I am a second-generation Jewish communal professional. My father was another executive director at at Neve Shalom here in Portland. He just retired after over 20 years at Neve Shalom, but he has always been a Jewish communal professional. We moved to Portland in the 80s for his job at the Jewish Community Center. I myself have worked at several Jewish organizations, uh, always within uh, the Jewish community here in Portland and in other places. When I was 13, my family decided to make Aliyah. We moved to Israel, became citizens, spent four years living in Jerusalem. So my, my roots in Israel are strong and deep. I've been back once since then, and I've about to go back again next week. Uh, have many friends and family there strongly identify with Israel and with the Jewish community, heavily involved here in Portland. I've been at Federation not quite 29 years, only a little over 10 years. I am the Director of Educational Initiatives and the Associate Director of Community Relations and live and and am a part of the Jewish community here in Portland. 
So with those job titles, tell me about your work with the Federation and with the Jewish community and how that puts you in contact with incidents of anti-Semitism that occur in our community. So first of all, we're both in the community relations field, which means that we're building bridges to different communities, be they faith communities, ethnic communities, or organizations, schools, for example. So because of those relationships, including within our own community, we often are confronted with, we hear from others about anti-Semitic incidents, whether they're in schools or outside of schools, they can be happening anywhere. It's at that point, because of our relationships, that hopefully we're able to start a conversation, be a resource to, especially to a school that is trying to address anti-Semitic incidents. And that's um, a lot of what's taking up our time right now. I mean, really, I would say, what would you say, 50% of our time, if not more? At the very least. Maybe more. Well, certainly since October 7th, it's taking up about 80% of our time. I was going to say, it seems like I've been talking about rising anti-Semitism in most of the stories I've been covering, but that trend has really found the spotlight in the wake of the October 7th attacks. What has that looked like from your perspective? Well, I think we we started seeing the trend of rising anti-Semitism really since 2016 uh, and the rhetoric in our election cycle, and I think it's just started to increase since then. October 7th was a pivotal point where it feels, in some ways, the Band-Aid was ripped off and anti-Semitism became rampant more from the left than from the right at this point. And we started hearing of incidents in schools, at community programs, different labor unions that we needed to address. And thankfully, in many of these instances, we've had the relationships pre established where we were able to call people and have conversations. But oftentimes these are with new new members or new communities that we haven't had conversations with in the past. And I would add that we don't do this by ourselves. I mean, we have really good community volunteers who are also engaged in advocacy. And what Rachel was talking about, where we have had successes is often because of that advocacy. It starts with us at the professional level, but we need help. It can't just be Rachel and Bob because we're just two people. Um, We need a lot of support, and we've been getting it, so that's encouraging. It's been incredible, the work of our lay leaders and our volunteers in terms of responding, the emails and the letters and the conversations that they're having with folks on the ground and alerting us to things that are happening. We're not going to know of every incident that happens. In fact, most of them we probably won't hear about. But we have community members who know and trust us and feel that they can come to us as a resource and then we can work with them to have conversations, to set up meetings, to send letters, and to be a resource for them. You know, back in September, we did a program on responding to anti-Semitism in the schools because over the last, especially year and a half, before, let's say pre-October 7, uh, we were occasionally getting a complaint from a teacher, a parent, about an anti-Semitic incident in a school, as young as elementary school, like fourth grade, uh, a lot of it coming from middle school. So we wanted to show how our community, especially us, but not just us, that we can be an ally to a school, a resource to a school. We can connect them to other resources when they're dealing with anti-Semitism. 
And usually if it's anti-Semitism, it's also racism or Islamophobia or whatever. It's usually not just one thing. So, and I think that after October 7th, a lot of it, as Rachel said, it's coming more from the far left and not necessarily the far left, quite frankly, even just from the progressive mainstream. We're hearing from school board members, uh, teacher unions that are taking a very divisive partisan side on this conflict, especially where, quite frankly, they have no business doing that, especially where, when it comes to teacher unions. So, for example, the Portland Association of Teachers promoting a pro-Palestinian rally that accuses Israel of genocide or apartheid, allowing flyers to be distributed at their meetings that are anti-Israel, those sorts of things. And you think about a teacher's union. Teachers are supposed to encourage critical thinking. How is this going to impact Jewish teachers, parents, students, who, quite frankly, we hear from that feel like, I'm not sure if we're safe sending our kids to these schools knowing that this is what they may be teaching. And right now, we're actually dealing with a teacher who is indoctrinating seventh grade students with anti-Israel propaganda. And so we're trying to address that. Yeah, that was, uh, that was something we started talking about before we began recording, mm -hmm. that when we've previously talked about anti-Semitism in schools, it's been peer-on-peer -peer bullying, but now we're starting to have teachers getting involved in that in a really negative way. What's some of the other ways that that's manifested? Posting things on, on their social media accounts, we had a teacher, I won't mention the specific school, it was a high school, where a teacher, a math teacher, was putting up posters accusing Israel of genocide and ethnic cleansing, which the intent may not have been anti-Semitic, but, but what, what he was doing was anti-Semitic. And so we had to address this, the principal, and the principal had those removed. I mean, this was a personal, political viewpoint that has no place in a classroom. It's that sort of thing. And, and, and sometimes it's hard to know where does it cross the line of legitimate criticism of Israel, which again, depending on the context, I mean, in a classroom, you know, are you teaching about Israel? Are you teaching about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Are you trying to present different sides? That's one thing. But where it goes beyond that to what really appears to be propaganda, that's where it's very problematic. And uh, at least according to the definition of anti-Semitism that we have adopted, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism, accusing Israel of acting like the Nazis, which is what one teacher allegedly is doing currently, that's anti-Semitism. Again, it may not be that that teacher is an anti-Semite, but what he's doing is anti-Semitic. And I'll add, it's also teachers who are sharing news clips or videos that are uninformed, misinformed, or not fully informed, and they're not giving full, full context when sharing stories around the news around Israel. And so then it appears one-sided, and once they've had, they've had an opportunity to learn, they're able to share a more balanced perspective. Which I think it addresses a question that some being introduced to this topic might ask. There's certainly an understandable level of sympathy for the Palestinian people, for what's happening in Gaza, for the humanitarian crisis. 
where is the line between that and what we're seeing that's really blatantly anti-Semitic and to really get into the definition of it, hateful towards Judaism and Jews and... So, first of all, no one in our community wants to see innocent non-combatants being killed. Okay? There is a context, whether it's, you know, because Hamas uses these people as human shields, which they do because they've embedded their entire terrorist infrastructure within a civilian population, or whether it's because of failed rockets that were fired from Gaza, or whether it's Israel not being <coughs> careful enough, it's a tragedy when a civilian is killed. This is a war, and unfortunately we've seen in many, many wars, including wars that were conducted by the United States, where civilians are, are killed, and that's, it's sad. It saddens us. So to be pro-Palestinian, to uh, be concerned about the humanitarian situation in Gaza is, of course, not in any way anti-Semitic. Where does it cross the line, then? We see in these rallies chants, uh, either slogans that are chanted or displayed on signs, things like, from the river to the sea, free Palestine, from the river to the sea. What does that mean? To us, it means the elimination of the state of Israel. Israel is between the river, the Jordan River, and the Mediterranean Sea. And those calls to eliminate Israel, we believe, are anti-Semitic. Accusing Israel of genocide, which is preposterous. Why, that, is, why specifically is that preposterous? Well, this has been going on. This transcends the current situation. So... And if it's you a look, claim we hear a so lot. We so Jews, we, Jews know what, we Jews know what genocide looks like, right? Just go back to the Holocaust where two out of every three European Jews were slaughtered. The Palestinian population in the West Bank and Gaza since Israel's establishment has grown fivefold. So I say that if the Israelis are trying to perpetrate a genocide, they're pretty inept at it. Okay, this is a war. Okay, Israel is not targeting civilians. Civilians are getting killed, caught in the crossfire. That's true, but they're not intentionally trying to kill Palestinians. This is a war between Israel and Hamas, and unfortunately the Palestinian people, those who are innocent non-combatants, are getting caught in the, in the crossfire. But to accuse Israel of genocide is just another way just like accusing Israel of apartheid, which is a demonstrably false accusation, is simply a way to delegitimize Israel, to demonize those who support Israel and those of us Jews who identify as being Zionist. And we can talk about what that means. But I, think, I think we should. Well, I want to remind people where this war started. And this war started on the morning of October 7th, where over 1,200 Israelis and foreign nationals uh, and Bedouins and Muslims were murdered, were raped, were tortured, and were taken hostage back to Gaza. And burned alive. And burned alive. This is how this war started. There had been a ceasefire in place on October 6th, and this war started as a, result, a direct result of the atrocities that happened on October 7th that are still not being fully acknowledged around the world. And I do think it is important to acknowledge that, and I'm glad you did. 
Bob, speaking to the the idea of Zionism, it's a word that gets tossed around a lot in these conversations, often as an epithet. Very briefly, what is Zionism? So let me just preface this by saying that our community study showed a very small, relatively small percentage of Jews in this community that identify as Zionist, like 26%. On the other hand, the study, when it looked at certain views about Israel that I would consider to be Zionist, they were all in the majority. So I think there's a lot of confusion about what does Zionism mean. There's not a common understanding. There should be, because there is an original meaning. To be a Zionist means you support the right of the Jewish people to national self-determination in at least a part of our ancestral homeland. It does not mean, by the way, that we don't support the right of Palestinians to national self-determination. So, you know, our federation, the vast majority, I think, of the American Jewish community support a two-state solution. It seems right now that it's very unrealistic, but that's our, our position. So when somebody attacks Zionists, calls us white supremacists, uh, or worse, <laughs> or discriminates against Zionists, excludes them from social justice circles, that is anti-Semitism. So Zionism, we talk about this three times a day when we pray. In our prayers, we talk about the yearning for our homeland. If you look, so I want to go to Bob's comment about being called white supremacists. If you look at the Jewish community, many of us have are white presenting, but we don't consider ourselves white. And the majority of the Israeli community, people living in Israel are not white. They are Jews of color. And there are consistent reminders in our archaeological digs and everything that, that Israel is our ancestral homeland. We are the indigenous community to Israel. Not the exclusive indigenous community, but that is our ancestral homeland, and we do have an, an indigenous right to be there. Speaking of Israel, where do you draw the line between legitimate criticism of the Israeli government and not just in regards to the response to October 7th, but going back to the occupation of the West Bank, where do you draw the line between that and anti-Semitism? So the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism makes it very clear that criticism, legitimate criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitism. I always point out that you wanted to see criticism of the Israeli government. Okay, we took a trip with 190 community members uh, at a time when there were protests every single Saturday night of Israelis, tens of thousands of Israelis protesting against the current <coughs> Israeli government, or at least before the present unity government. Where does it cross the line? When the intent is to delegitimize and demonize by putting forward these false accusations, for example, apartheid, the idea that a bunch of white Jews came in the late 1800s and 1900s and displaced the indigenous population, meaning that there were no Jews living in what was then called Palestine. There's this notion that Jews are somehow foreign interlopers, that we don't belong there. And so that's just a, it's not only is it false, it's a way to demonize. 
again, accusing Israel of genocide is also demonstrably false, and it's just another way of demonizing Israel and undercutting Israel's efforts to defend its own people in the face of the sort of horrendous, unspeakable attacks that happened on October 7th. So it, it may not always be so cut and dry, but look, I, just personally speaking, I had several criticisms of the current Israeli government, some of the proposals regarding judicial overhaul. I am personally opposed to Israel expanding settlements in the West Bank. I believe that they should be only focusing on those Jewish communities that are right uh, just past the green line, where 75 to 80 percent of the Israelis, quote unquote, settlers are living. Uh, I've been a criticism of that for a long time. Of course, that doesn't make me an anti-Semite. Maybe some people will accuse me of being anti-Israel because I am against the settlements, uh, at least the far-flung settlements, but uh, that's, to me, that's absurd. And in fact, our JCRC in the summer of 2020 had a statement and voted that we were opposed to the annexation and the settlements. We were one of the only JCRCs in the country to vote on that. Yeah, we issued a statement that expansion of settlements, or even there was talk at that time of annexation, that it would be very unhelpful in terms of a future peaceful two-state solution. Which is the ultimate goal, I think, for really everybody who's taking peace in this in this part of the world seriously. I mean, obviously, you have some extremist elements that are arguing for a, a one-state solution one way or a one-state solution the other, but everybody I've talked to about this has been unanimous in saying that a just solution is one where there's two, there, where there's a Jewish state and there's a Palestinian state. Yes. So we talked briefly about what's been going on in schools in terms of anti-Semitism, but really what is the effect that we've seen that have on, on students, on kids? And we're talking about middle schoolers or even younger that are experiencing this. Well, I wanna actually share a success story of a conversation that we had after this happened. So in uh, about a month ago, right before Thanksgiving, one of our local unions, school unions, teachers unions, released a statement out of nowhere on their social media. And families responded, teachers responded. We were able to get a meeting with that teachers union. And they took the post down. And they acknowledged that they didn't know what they were posting about when they posted that they had seen labor unions across the country make statements. The statement they made did not acknowledge the atrocities of October 7th. And they realized that there had been a misstep there and they needed to change that. So they removed the post and it's now an ongoing conversation with that teacher's union. But this was a success that we were able to have a conversation with. This was with the Beaverton Education Association, the Beaverton Teachers Union. And they understood, and they they didn't they acknowledged the the harm and the and the missteps they had taken. So I want to give compliments where they we have had some very successful conversations, and not just with school unions, but with other organizations who have posted statements that have been hurtful and harmful to the Jewish community, and who have taken steps to acknowledge that and to repair the harm. Within our schools right now, we have students who are hearing misinformation, and Bob mentioned it earlier, about information about the war that's just wrong and, and false. And that is incredibly demoralizing and hard for students to hear. 
they're Zionists, they love their Judaism, they want to be a part of Israel, and then they're hearing that Israel is a genocidal state. So imagine you have a teacher's union that's supposed to be on strike, focusing on contract negotiations, but they're allowing either teachers or even outside activists to infiltrate their picket lines with signs accusing Israel of genocide. What is the message that's sending to the Jewish community? What's the message that they're sending to Jewish teachers or to students that you are part of the side of evil? I mean, that's how it's being interpreted. So there are parents who are feeling like, how am I to send my kid to a Portland public school when their teacher's union is taking sides in this conflict? And by the way, probably pretty ill-informed about it in the first place. I mean, what do they really understand about it? And these kids are now being subjected to propaganda, and that can incite. So students seeing that, oh, okay, Israel's a genocidal state, Israel's on the side of evil. Well, here's a Jewish kid, here's an Israeli kid, let's go bully them. And that's what's happening in some cases. So it's very frightening, and we're trying to address it. We're trying to have conversations to point out that there is this ripple effect, whether it's a teacher's union or it's an, an organization that should be welcoming and inclusive of all people, regardless of faith, nationality, what have you. If you're taking sides in a conflict you don't even really understand, and let's face it, 99% of these people involved in these organizations that are making these statements have no clue. I mean, I just don't believe they really understand. They just see what, what's being reported and they go, or what's on Instagram, and then they go run with it. So there's a message there that is very unwelcoming and makes people feel unsafe. We haven't even talked about the college campuses. This is happening on campuses all around the country, right, where... Now, I believe seven universities are under investigation for not responding forcefully to anti-Semitism on their campuses, and especially since October 7th. And I want to go back to these organizations that are supposed to be welcoming in our communities who are now focusing on international affairs that have nothing to do with the local work of their communities. They should be focusing on their teacher salaries. They should be focusing on the curriculum. They should be focusing in community centers on building safe spaces for kids and families to enjoy activities. They aren't focusing on what they need to be focusing on when they bring in international affairs that are not relevant to the day-to-day -day work of their city, their towns, or their communities. Of Portland's 56 or so thousand Jewish people, most of them, as our community study showed, are some degree of politically liberal or progressive, and both of you yourselves have been involved in political efforts through JCRC and advocacy and lobbying, you, almost always for causes that would be described as liberal and progressive. And you've mm -hmm. worked closely with a number of the organizations and a number of people and a number of groups that are now engaging in this, I think, what we can fairly call hate speech, anti-Semitic hate speech. What does it feel like for the two of you to, I don't know what you, even what the right term would be, left out to have backs turned on you to be betrayed in this manner? I actually don't see it that way. 
I don't believe that our partners, while they may want, they may try to maintain a neutral stance, some of them have come out in support at our October 9th solidarity gathering. We had leaders from some of our interfaith or interethnic partners that joined us. Uh, we have a African-American pastor who's going on the solidarity trip with Rachel and others next week. Uh, so I don't believe that they're turning their backs on us. We may, you know, see an organization that we work with call for a ceasefire. I understand their motivation for calling for a ceasefire. Uh, they don't want to see innocents being killed. Uh, hopefully they've also acknowledged what happened on October 7th and that there are still hostages. So I don't blame them for that. I mean, the ones that are involved in the rallies at which there are these anti-Semitic motifs. That's a different story. And I don't believe any of our partners. Now, where there might have been one or two, I would say, lesser partners that may have issued statements, um, we've addressed those. And in fact, um, I think in a couple different cases, we've actually succeeded in educating them why their statements were problematic and they removed them or they revised them. I, I think the one community is the Muslim community. And we have a Muslim partner that's been working with us in United in Spirit, which is our interfaith coalition on homelessness. And we've had some communication with one another. And basically it goes like this. We understand we don't see eye to eye when it comes to this particular conflict, but this particular uh, Muslim representative did say that what happened on October 7th was unacceptable and that Israel had a right to defend itself. But she wanted us to sign on to a ceasefire, a, a letter demanding a ceasefire, and we explained why, respectfully, why we couldn't do that at, this, at the time she asked about it. So, you know, we're going to agree to disagree, uh, and that's understandable. I, I didn't expect her to <laughs> suddenly become pro-Israel. or that We knew that wasn't going to happen, and nor did I necessarily even expect her to reach out to us right after October 7th, uh, where others did. Uh, the Hindu community, for example, has been tremendously supportive. And we did reach out to them when, for example, this little Muslim boy was shot and killed simply because he was a Muslim, the one in Chicago. So I hope we can maintain that relationship because we have a lot of things in common with that community and I hope we can, when all the dust settles, that we can continue to work on those important issues. I do think there are folks involved with a lot of the progressive causes that do feel that they've lost their place in those progressive organizations based on Jewish people involved Jewish in community members work. who feel that they no longer have a place in some of the progressive causes that they were a part of uh, as allies, as partners, because they do feel that they've been either silenced or statements have come out not under not expressing the same level of concern about what happened on October 7th as to the war that's happening now. So I, I do think there are folks within our progressive spheres that do feel that they've been isolated and left out of the conversation. Including, by the way, elected officials. I mean, we met with Jewish state legislators. I don't want to name who they are. Um, they're Jewish. And we heard from at least two of them, three of them, who indicated that they had been 
subjected subjected to just anti-Semitic vitriol from people calling, people seeing them in public. We had one legislator tell us that people she thought were her friends, um, she can no longer count on as being friends because of the way that they have been demonizing Israel and showing a complete lack of understanding of what happened on October 7th, or even describing it as resistance. So with everything that's happened and continues to happen, what do we do? What, do, what can somebody who's listening to this today do to address these problems? I would say first and foremost, we need eyes and ears. We can't address any situation if we don't know about it, especially in the schools. I mean, we're, we've been talking about some of the examples we've seen in the schools. I shudder to think what else is out there that we just don't know about. So we want them to be able to, in a, we're a safe space for them to come uh, to file a report with us, to talk to us about how we can be helpful in addressing whatever that situation is. We get a lot of those calls. But I'm sure there's a lot more that just go unreported. So I think that's number one, getting involved. I mean, we have been doing professional development training or other types of workshops on anti-Semitism for schools, for government entities, for grassroots human rights groups, you name it. We want to be doing more of that, and we have the capacity to do more of that. And so for people listening that have a connection, it could be to a particular school or it could be to a church or some other organization, uh, a grassroots group that could use that sort of education, because I do believe education is the first line of defense against anti-Semitism. And there are ways to get involved with the Jewish Human Relations Council, the JCRC, and we're happy to talk to people. We have an Israel Advocacy Committee. We have an intergroup outreach committee. We have a climate committee that's getting a little bit beyond the, the subject today, uh, and a legislative advocacy committee. There are ways to get involved with us through our committees, especially those that are dealing with combating anti-Semitism or anti-Israel activity. I think being, again, what Bob said, being the eyes and ears, letting us know, we don't have to necessarily go in and respond, but we can provide the framework and the scaffolding to help families with what they're dealing with, give them sample letters, uh, resources, other organizations that we partner with that can go in and be resources as well. But we need them to call us. We need them to email us. We need them to let us know what's going on. And chances are there are others in their, in their schools that are having similar experiences that also need help that don't feel safe coming out. And I'll, I will provide links to those resources uh, to contact Bob and Rachel in the uh, episode description. Rachel Nelson, Bob Hornstein, thank you so much for joining me on the Jewish Review Podcast. Thank Thanks you for very having much. Me. That's all for this episode of the Jewish Review Podcast. Thanks to Rachel Nelson and Bob Hornstein for all they do to combat anti-Semitism and for taking the time to share their experiences. If you've seen or heard something concerning, please reach out to Bob or Rachel. Their contact information is in the episode description, along with a link to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism. As a note for our regular listeners, our next episode, part two in this series on anti-Semitism, will be released a week later than usual on January 3rd, with bi-weekly episodes to resume thereafter. If you like this episode, 
please leave a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice to help others find our show and click subscribe to get our latest episode every two weeks. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please reach out by email to editor at jewishportland.org. The Jewish Review Podcast is a production of the Jewish Federation of Greater Portland. Special thanks to Daniel Berger. Our theme music is by Isaac Joel. I'm Rockney Roll. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, all the best. Thank you.